Episode 15 of ICO 41, Weekly In-Depth Analysis of Initial Coin Offerings. Hello and welcome to Episode 15 of ICO 41. My name is Owen Scott, and I'm your podcast host. This podcast focuses deeply on a single ICO each week and presumes some knowledge of the basics of blockchain technology. What's a little different about this podcast is that we read the white papers and we investigate the background of the team, and if we can, we spend some time commuting directly with the team in question, and then we report to you in detail. As always, this podcast is not intended as investment advice, nor is information to lead to any particular course of action whatsoever. Our aim is to inform, not to suggest. For this week, we will focus on an upcoming ICO that may not be terribly far along in terms of the actual token launch, but enough work has been done on the white paper, as well as the apparent evolution in the company thinking that we have enough material here to warrant a decent look. Now, in preparation for this project under discussion, I feel like I need to cover a few things that the white paper sort of presumes pretty decent knowledge of. So I feel like if I spend a couple of minutes just sort of giving you this information just in case you don't already have it, you'll be better prepared to understand the analysis. What I'm talking about, namely, is the enterprise-level security concerns and cloud-based file storage. When technologists like me and others talk about so-called enterprise computing, what we're trying to do is make an effort to distinguish between what you might call consumer-level computing and the computing requirements of much larger companies. You might imagine that the needs and especially the security concerns for, let's just say, a modern first world family consists mainly of the ability to protect their financial data as well as the files that they hold important to them. And trust me when I say that in a family of, let's say, four kids, the 16,000 or so digital photos or videos of your kids from birth to teenage years are considered to be pretty important. But it's also fair to say, I think, that there's quite a bit of overlap between those kind of security concerns at the end consumer level and many small businesses as well. That's because a very large number of businesses, both in the United States and elsewhere, are run not much differently than a large family, or maybe even by families. So the security concerns there are actually quite similar to the end consumer. But it really gets quite different when we talk about the security concerns and the file storage requirements and the computing requirements of this so-called enterprise. Because now we are talking not only about a significant degree of greater liability, but we're also talking about very large targets from hackers and malware and so forth against these enterprise-level companies because 
they're much, much larger. In fact, this actually reminds me of a movie that I, I just saw last night. The, the name of the movie is Dunkirk. This was a kind of an interesting story. It was a week-long incident that happened in, in the early months or years of World War II. And there were about 300,000 Allied soldiers, mainly British, that were essentially stranded across the English Channel on a beachside town in France with the enemy forces completely surrounding them. And the only way out was by sea across about 20 miles of the English Channel. Well, turns out that a big part of the plan to rescue these 300,000 soldiers was to use something like 800 small boats in addition to the few large ships, mainly because it's a lot harder to attack a ton of small boats than it is to attack a few huge destroyers or troop ships or whatever large vessel you have. So in enterprise-level security analyses, there's this concept of attack surface or exposure of a given asset. That's quantified. And so the white paper here, or just people in general, have thought to themselves, what happens when you distribute the pieces of X, which is the thing you're trying to protect, across many points, such that you must attack all points in order to pull off a completely successful attack. Well, common sense will tell us what will happen to that attack surface. It will actually be effectively reduced. Now, this is an important point to understand for this ICO. And the other important point is to understand the role nowadays of cloud computing in the enterprise. So. I'm sure you're aware of cloud computing, but essentially it's, it's the ability to use business features and functions, everything really from in storing very, very important files or databases to actually running complex business software, not on servers that your company has to pay for and maintain, but services provided by large, large companies such as Oracle and Microsoft, Amazon, Salesforce and Google, a few others as well. Cloud computing for the enterprise. Now, it took a little while for the enterprise to uh, get there due to some trust issues and so forth and so on. And those trust issues, security issues still hold, especially for certain industries like healthcare and banking. But the big news really in the last few years is that the enterprise has really gotten started to embrace this so-called cloud. If you look at the history, recent history of Microsoft, you'll see a very, very large portion of their success in the near past is through cloud services. Now we see enterprise companies nowadays using cloud-based services for Almost everything, large-scale file storage, customer relationship management systems, enterprise resource planning software, which is accounting, essentially, and even supply chain management. A lot of these systems are cloud-based now. The files, the databases, even the front-end software is maintained and provided by others, third parties, large third-party 
hosting providers. Now, this white paper presumes that you understand all of this. You take it for granted and you understand it. And so in the interest of efficiency, I wanted to provide you with this sort of background information just in case you don't happen to know the significance of it, especially with respect to this white paper. So let's get started with this analysis. The ICO this week that we're going to discuss is... Cryptic. Now, that would be spelled C-R-Y-P-T-Y-K. And cryptic.com is the place to go for more information, at least currently. Now, there are a few concepts that Cryptic makes in the introduction of this white paper that we should cover very quickly. So first, although enterprise-level data storage is cheap, enterprise-level security is most definitely not cheap. In fact, it appears to cost roughly between $40 and $80 per user per month. And secondly, these costs and this amount of money spent is not very effective. In fact, as the white paper points out, the, despite the fact that the cybersecurity industry is now approaching about $100 billion in value, Security breaches, at least according to Forbes magazine recently, are now costing 10 times that per year. And it's projected that by 2019, the breaches worldwide will consist of upwards of $2 trillion per year. Well, needless to say, this, this is a major concern for enterprise companies. Everybody is thinking about security now. The third point that it makes in the introduction in this white paper is that one of the main reasons for this failure is essentially the attack surface that we talked about earlier. And this is true for both in-house as well as cloud providers. And the centralization, especially of cloud-based systems, makes cloud services particularly vulnerable across a certain number of attack vectors. Now, what do you suppose the answer is? Well, as you might have guessed it, a big part of this is decentralization. Sort of like that Dunkirk movie, except that this white paper shows what happens using math to the attack surface when you perform so-called sharding or decentralization of assets and even of providers. Basically, the white paper says that you can achieve a much more favorable attack surface by using a couple of fundamental concepts. First is a blockchain network with a certain number of trusted nodes. And secondly, something they call multi-cloud vendor storage. Now that is kind of interesting and novel in such that you create a distributed access layer to multiple cloud vendors such as Amazon AWS, Microsoft Azure, IBM Cloud, any kind of competing cloud-based system, everything from Hitachi to Nutanix. And you essentially decentralize that so that there are a number of simultaneously used cloud providers. If you think about that, that's a pretty powerful idea. And the idea is to think about the other side of it, the attack. 
what is required actually to, to sort of break in and obtain access to data that exists on three or four or more different vendor sites when the compromise of any or two of these sites is actually completely worthless unless all the sites were compromised. If you look at that sort of attack scenario and then the resulting uh, probability of successfully hacking such a system, you'll find that the attack surface dramatically decreases. That's the high-level concept. Now, we'll dive a little bit more into this when we talk about the white paper, but let's talk about the company and the team a little bit first. Well, what's kind of interesting to me about Cryptic is that as a company, the founder, who happens to be a physicist, has evidently been building this company for some time, well before considering an ICO as a means for fundraising. In 2015, uh, if you look at archived web pages, the company describes itself, and I'm quoting, as a paranoid bunch of quantum physicists, security experts, software coders, and ethical hackers who are at war with all criminal hacking organizations. So pretty cool set of roots there. If you examine the backgrounds of some of the team that you find on the website, you find a pretty wide and interesting group of many collective years of experience. This company is definitely not run by millennials. Uh, this company has a lot of solid years behind it in a wide variety of fields, but mostly around cybersecurity. I think there's also a lot of interesting aspects to some of the team. I mean, for instance, the chief architect uh, not only spent years in overseeing the deployment and development of complex automation systems on Wall Street, quite literally in Wall Street, he also lived on a sailboat for 10 years. And I'll tell you, he plays one hell of a mean blues harmonica. If you really start to investigate some of these guys and what they're doing, it's very, very cool stuff. Now, the other members of the team, they range from corporate lawyers to systems engineers to PhD physicists, architects, definitely impressive in their own respective fields. Now, there is one thing that I would be remiss if I didn't mention, and, and that's just that the the core team that is assembled as the core team is not especially strong in blockchain program experience or perhaps even the development and deployment of blockchain technology. There is on the core team one person that's described as a blockchain expert, but from what I could find, uh, the output there consists mainly of a well-written blog post in September of this year, and that blog post made a uh, more or less a verbatim appearance in the white paper itself. Now, they make up for this sort of lack of that type of technology, very specific, uh, in the set of advisors that they put together. So there, you'll find several individuals who have some extensive experience, specifically in blockchain. Although no core developers, per se. So this is not what you might call a developer-driven ICO. Now, I should recognize a couple of things here. First of all, Blockchain developers with long histories of blockchain-specific development experience that's documented for all of us to see are pretty hard to find. And in a way, number two, this makes sense because it is a very, very new technology. 
Now, fortunately, from my own personal experience, I've found that there's a keen interest in developers these days who are typically coding in traditional languages like C++ or maybe Java and some of the scripting languages. They're really starting to look at blockchain-based technologies, programming languages like Solidity and Go, and just in general, just learning some of the aspects of how to put together a blockchain and make it function. So I think as time passes, the cryptic team, and again, we're pretty early on, the token sales a little ways off, they should probably have a better time uh, finding these kinds of resources as they get closer and closer to the project, actually launching, at least the token sale launching. This company has been operational as a cybersecurity firm. And when you really look at the history uh, of the website, you see an interesting evolution of thought. For instance, in late 2016, it's about a year ago, a little bit before a year ago, they began to promote these ideas of uh, a secure cloud technology and what they were calling uh, secure hybrid cloud enterprise networks. And you can hear and see there the evolution of the idea of having this sort of decentralized notion around existing cloud service providers. Kind of interesting. If you look at those thoughts and you read some of that copy from back then, you can draw a pretty good linear and coherent line between those ideas and the thoughts that are expressed in the white paper with respect to blockchain. What it shows to me from the team and company perspective is just that this is a company that obviously learned some more about blockchain as the months and months went by. And they, at some point, had sort of an aha moment. And I think that as a company that has done this and reframed their kind of message or their ideas, I think they've done a good job of uh, turning these concerns and issues and coming up with a solution that does seem to make good sense with respect to the use of blockchain and also distributed technology. If you think about it, they were already on that path. This sort of just gave them uh, a better framework uh, with which to express those ideas. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about the white paper at this point. Um, there's a lot to like about this white paper. Uh, first of all, it does a fine job of framing the problems which we discussed mainly during the concept part of this analysis. And those problems are real, and there's no question about it. The security industry itself is, is just booming because, to be honest, the hacking isn't going to stop. <laughs> there's no way that we are going to, as a world, simply stop the attacks what I sort of like at a very, very high level about the white paper is the implication that, yeah, we kind of know that. We know that it's not going to stop. So let's do everything we can, presuming that attacks will continue and will ultimately be successful. Let's do everything we can so that when they are successful, they're not successful. In meaning, when the access to the data is breached, that what they find there is useless to them. And I like that high-level concept. Also, what I like about this white paper is that it points out problems that not only exist in terms of uh, the current threat 
and the current level of attack that goes on all day, every day. They also talk about some of the problems that exist in terms of blockchain application and the deployment thereof. And they are pretty specific about things like latency using blockchain solutions and how the latency is quite unacceptable when certain applications are used. And I'm really talking about cloud-based storage and also real-time applications. Just to give you a simple example of what I'm talking about, I don't know if you've ever used a system like Google Docs, for instance, editing a file in real time, collaborating with other people. This is actually very common in academia these days, uh, even in high school, even believe it or not in middle school, where students are actually working on the same file. Now in this case, you've got several people working on a file, a document, in real time, and there's no way that this can be effective or actually work for everybody involved with network latency. Now, network latency I'm going to define as anything, let's say, over 100 milliseconds. That means that no more than 100, and certainly no more than 200 milliseconds, can transpire between the time that you type a letter in this document and your collaborator types their letters, and all of those letters show up for the both of you or the several people all at once. Now, that's, to be clear, a tenth and a fifth of a second, respectively. Now, that's an example of using a real-time cloud service that not only stores the file that you're working on, but it also represents something we call as a functional application layer, a presentation layer, to the user. In this case, it's the software for document editing, essentially word processing software. Now, the authors of this white paper correctly identify the problem wherein the current file storage systems using blockchain technology, they cannot be used in such a manner. They cannot be used for that type of application because the latency on blockchain applications is sometimes measured in seconds and even more, tens of seconds, and even more than that, depending on the size of the blockchain and the nature of the blockchain. That makes certain blockchains not really usable for this type of application. It would be perfectly fine, for instance, for long-term backup of files where retrieval is sort of occasional not instant and in real time. But if you attempt to run any kind of system that requires instant and immediate retrieval of data, retrieval of information from a blockchain, you could have a problem. But here's the other thing. The other thing that's important to understand is that blockchain systems are inherently much more secure than centralized cloud systems. And that's, of course, because we talked about the tax surface benefit. You obtain that benefit in the attack service, that reduction in the attack surface, as soon as you start to distribute the information in the form of nodes. Now, the slight problem here is that as any classic blockchain system, more nodes 
definitely means more security, but it also means more latency. And this is primarily because a blockchain network must establish consensus among the nodes. Consensus to agree upon the truth of the files and data that is being stored there and, in this case, protected there. That's the foundation of blockchain. And that is that the nodes are required to talk to each other a lot. And they have to agree on what they're talking about. And that communication and that agreement, just to vastly simplify it, costs time. Now, this white paper does a good job of defining and showing what they call the sweet spot between the number of nodes and the latency. Number of nodes for security, fewer nodes for latency. And it turns out, at least in the investigations that uh, Cryptic has performed, that this sweet spot lives right around five nodes and that provides about 200 milliseconds of latency. Now that's just fine for real-time editing applications and just about any other kind of real-time application. And it certainly is fine for the retrieval of stored data. And the best part of this is that with just five nodes operating, the attack surface is reduced by 90%. So you get, just with a simple five nodes, a greatly enhanced security profile. Once again, that same Dunkirk analogy. It's pretty powerful. In fact, it's logarithmic if you look at it in terms of a graph. Now, the specific use case that's mentioned for these five kind of nodes uh, is the way that you could distribute uh, multiple cloud service providers and that these five nodes would kind of represent that kind of distribution. Now, the thing is this, though. Those of you who have followed this podcast, you'll probably remember some discussion that we've had about the security fundamentals about blockchain. You would probably remember this concept of the Sybil attack and the 51% attack, when collusion exists between nodes or when nodes can impersonate other nodes. That's the Sybil attack. Now, when you've got a blockchain network of about 10,000 nodes like Bitcoin, it's very, very hard to achieve that, a 51% collusion between all nodes. In fact, that's actually never been achieved. It's never even happened to Bitcoin. But if you believe, maybe from listening to this podcast or because you already know this, that such an attack, either the Sybil or the 51%, would be much, much easier with a network of five nodes, well then, yeah, you would be absolutely correct about that. Now, to meet this obvious security vulnerability in this concept of just small amount of nodes for, for low latency, Cryptic has come up with several concepts. First is a consortium-based permissioned blockchain. And we've talked a lot about this, mainly because we're seeing it a lot in the white papers. And because it clearly seems to be the result of some practical thinking when it comes to the deployment of blockchain in the enterprise. We see it in the health industry. They pretty much demand some sort of permissioned, semi-private or fully private or consortium-based blockchain. We see it in the Hyperledger project. We see banks using it. And now we see it here. Essentially, 
fewer nodes can be used if they are trusted with a great deal of layers established to trust them along with proof from them. And secondly, uh, Cryptic in addressing this potential vulnerability has created several interoperable components and they're based on sort of different use cases and different parts of problems that are associated with managing security. The first one they call is the vault. That's the distributed multi-cloud storage that we talked about. The next is Passport. Now this is in fact the private permission blockchain. And that governs user access and a ledger to keep track of pretty much every activity that goes on in the ecosystem. And that's a distributed permissioned blockchain. Then there's Codebook. Codebook is another component, and that's essentially a decentralized data map. And they don't spell it out, but I could imagine that would be perhaps uh, a hash table that we've talked about before. Uh, and that's for internal data and file encryption key storage, among other things. I think we've definitely heard the use of Kademlia tables in other projects, and I think that this is similar in nature to that, this code book. Uh, in addition to that, there's something called Sentry, which is sort of a core back backend engine, I guess you could say. It's responsible for about nine major functions that allow the various components to interact and maintain security and meet the challenges of the major attack things like external threats, viral threats, internal threats, operational failures, intercept threats. So Sentry is this sort of layer or component that acts a lot like a traffic cop, a lot like a sort of set of business logic a lot of functions going on, talking to the other components of the system. What I find interesting about the presentation of this in the white paper is that they do bring it back to actual use cases and they talk about how enterprise customers would interact with this system. And they even mention the fact that they could actually select, in some cases, the various components that they want to use. There could be levels of consumption here, as an example. Um, secure file system backup. Maybe that's just the vault service. That's just the vault. Give us the vault. That's all we need is the vault. We, we, we'll deal with the other things ourselves. Or maybe there'll be a, a much more robust security requirement and they would need some business logic to deal with man-in-the-middle attacks or maybe internal threats and other kinds of attack vectors that aren't just files. And uh, then they would, you know, ask for a little bit more. Maybe there'd be passport, maybe there'd be codebook, sentry, and so forth. So there's these different layers of services. So I, there's a lot, like I said, to like about the white paper. And uh, I think it's definitely worth reading. It might change because it's somewhat early days, but you'll find it at uh, cryptic.com. Now let's talk about uh, the network and the technology. The name of the token is a CTO. And the blockchain that's described will essentially, like I said, it's called Passport. And it's, it's the basis for one of the components of the ecosystem. And it's designed as a private permissioned blockchain. Now the consensus mechanism is a little bit unique. 
there is a consensus algorithm described as proof of security. And proof of security is actually a function, and within that function are other proofs. Proof of integrity, proof of confidentiality, proof of access, proof of posture, proof of compliance. Now, there are definitely brief descriptions of these proofs, but there's no specific details about how any of these proofs are actually achieved, like no sort of description of the algorithm. It is mentioned that there are going to be CTO miners, CTO being the token. So we might presume these could be forms of proof of work, perhaps. But to give you an example of of, of what I would like to see and what maybe we will see is that if you go back to even to Satoshi's Bitcoin paper, proof of work is adequately, clearly described in a couple of paragraphs. And there's some references to earlier work known as Hashcash. The fundamentals in Satoshi's paper are covered, starting with the importance of the timestamp. And then with a brief description of how the nonce, you know, the, the, the solution to the puzzle is more or less found. Here we just, we don't really have any details or any references to prior um, consensus algorithm, consensus mechanism work. So we'd like to see that at, at some point, I would think. We have some time, obviously, because we're not even sure how much time is going to transpire. The uh, website makes reference to early 2018. So I do feel like there's going to be plenty of time to ask these questions. And of course, if the opportunity arises, I will. Um, and then I'll obviously report back to you. Let's talk about the management of the token and the way it's used in the network. Uh, this is spelled out pretty well, actually, as uh, well as some other details, such as how the system will interface with some of these outside forces like you know, Amazon Web Services, Google, cloud solution providers. In the middle of this system is a proprietary exchange. And that supports the flow of inbound coins of various denominations like Ethereum or Bitcoin, others, and of course, CTO itself. And this central sort of exchange will allow customers of Cryptic to purchase services using CTO. And it will allow those cloud service providers, the traditional ones that are sort of distributed, uh, the ability to be paid in fiat currency as needed. Uh, there's something else called an incentives engine, which is funded by a nonprofit organization that actually receives a third of the proceeds of the token sale. And that will create a pool for partner incentives and other incentives. I, I should really mention that you can sign up at the Cryptic website as a partner, even an open source partner. It's mentioned that projects could be funded in various amounts between $5,000 and $100,000. This kind of reminds me about that fund that was planned for uh, with the Ambrosius project, uh, where they called it the Farmers Fund for Small Farmers and Undeveloped Nations. Kind of interesting, interesting take, and kind of cool that developers themselves can sort of join in this capacity. Let's talk about the token and the sale. The, The website that is intended to provide the details about the token sale does not yet quite exist. For instance, if you visit cryptic.com and you click on the link for token sale, you're directed to cryptic.io. 
but the message on that page is that the website's under construction is coming soon. Unfortunately, though, the white paper has some details about the token sale. Essentially, it appears that 750 million tokens will actually be issued, although it's not spelled out because, after all, if there's miners, it could be that these CTO miners will help generate those tokens. But nevertheless, 75 million, 750 million tokens. The price of the token will be $0.10 cents U.S. each. This implies a sort of cap of $75 million. The white paper shows an even three-way split between what are described as first investors and then Cryptic Incorporated and then the nonprofit Cryptic Foundation. Now, for an ICO, I got to say it's a little unusual in that there are $25 million, for instance, that's labeled as Cryptic Incorporated when it's described, I'm quoting now, reserved for the shareholders of Cryptic Inc., who can slowly exchange their equity for tokens over a two to four year vesting period, depending on whether they're founders, investors, advisors, or employees. Now, I'm just going to take a wild guess here and presume that as we get a little closer to the ICO, that this language might change a little bit. I, I only say this because I'm not sure how this sort of language holds up with the current climate with respect to token offerings and ICOs that are, may or may not be labeled as securities by the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC. Now, of course, we don't know the details of the token offering. For all I know, it's possible that this company will actually file with the SEC as a security. So who knows? But this would be a typical question that we would ask the company as we get closer to the token sale launch and as we get closer to some of the communications channels that I'll describe in a moment. Now let's talk about the community and the response. Now, there's actually little or no community involvement with this ICO yet. For instance, there's no announcement on Bitcoin Talk. Uh, there's nothing about this on Reddit. Don't be confused by the game Cryptic, of which you'll find many references. Remember, this is C-R-Y-P-T-Y-K, not I-K. Uh, there's no code on GitHub. Uh, there's no Slack channel, there's no Discord, there's no Telegram channel. And this all leads me to believe that we are sometime before the launch of the ICO because I think it would be a little bit unusual to attempt to launch an ICO without having some of those things in place, depending on the nature of the launch, I suppose. I presume that as you get a little bit closer to the launch of the ICO that this company will release some communication channels that allow you to pose some of the questions that I've brought up here. Let's talk about uh, business viability and possible gotchas. One good thing that I see from a business perspective especially is that this is a company that seems to understand and value actual partnership. There are several ways in which to partner with them. Uh, even from archived web pages, you can see that they have felt this way for years. You don't see, frankly, a lot of ICOs these days that go much beyond a page of icons to show all the partners that they're associated with. And that's probably because the success of the recent ICOs have proven that you don't necessarily need partners to be successful to launch an ICO and collect millions of dollars for your project. But 
a company that has sign-up forms and description of the benefits with partnering with them and different types of partners and definitions around what types of partners are allowed into the network, it's very refreshing, actually. So from a business viability perspective in terms of a company that seems to know what it's like to do business with partnership, I think that's a good sign. You know, my final takeaway of this one uh, is that uh, the white paper is definitely worth reading. Uh, It seeks to address some major issues that enterprise companies face. And I like the fact that it also uh, talks about existing deployments of file-based blockchain solutions. I definitely like some of the ideas expressed. And I think a lot of the concepts are actually quite valid and would be successful if they were deployed and then widely adopted by enterprise companies. Now, on the other hand, it's pretty clear that they're pretty early in the process. I think that the final verdict is going to be a lot more clear when we get a little bit closer to that token launch. And this will be especially true, as I mentioned, when those communication channels open and when they start engaging with the community. So that's about it for this uh, week. And I hope you find uh, Cryptic interesting. And uh, see you next week.